Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. to the Analyst Inside Cricket and T20 is raging round the world of cricket at the moment with, of course, England in New Zealand, with Australia playing Pakistan, having easily beaten Sri Lanka in a three-match T20 series. Bangladesh are on tour in India playing T20 matches and also there's been the World T20 qualifiers in Dubai with a new name entering the World T20 in 12 months' time, that's going to be Papua New Guinea, who could be in England's group. So that's fascinating. We've also got to talk about uh, one or two slightly lower points uh, of the game, both uh, Shakib Al-Hassan, who's been banned for two years, one of those suspended for not reporting approaches from bookies, and also the sad news that Glenn Maxwell is taking some time out of the game to manage his mental health. So lots of interesting things to talk about. Um, Simon Mann, the first thing, you're out in New Zealand following England around. Um, what I want to know is, have you still got the shorts on? I Do you know, Yaz, I have. I'm sitting here in my motel in Nelson and I've got my shorts on. It has been an absolutely fantastic day in, in Nelson today. What wonderful weather. We've actually been pretty lucky so far with the weather. It was, it was decent in Christchurch, not particularly warm. It was decent at Wellington, but wonderful weather in Nelson. I think Nelson, actually, which is on the north coast of the South Island, is the sunniest place in New Zealand. It is officially the sunniest place in New Zealand. England play the, the third T20 international of the series uh, a little bit later this week. Yep, still got the shorts on, and, and justifiably so. I mean, I, I kept the shorts on right until the end of October back in, in England. I toughed it out, but here is definitely shorts weather. <laughs> you put the mockers on the game tomorrow now. With the, there's going to be rain falling now with, the, with, that, with all that. But uh, So England uh, won all so far, uh, obviously five matches in the series. And uh, clearly it's, it's a different sort of England because there's no Stokes, Butler, Root, Archer, Moen Alley. You know, there's a, there's a number of, of players missing, no Jason Roy. So, so it's very much kind of looking at the, the second line of defence, if you like, for England. And when I say the word defence, I suppose, actually, that's what I, I think of as bowlers in T20. They're not, it's not a bowling attack. It's a bowling defence with all the sort of intimidatory batting going on. So how have the one or two of the new England bowlers, do you think, fared so far? Well, I think there's been a you know a certain amount of promise. It's you know it's very early days in, in in the competition in the series. You know they've only had two matches, one of which they won comfortably in in Christchurch. It was actually quite a, a straightforward victory. And then the second game, they didn't bowl particularly badly. What they did do was they 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 caught really poorly. And um, James Vince dropped three catches, two of which should have been taken. David Milan dropped a catch as well and there was a difficult chance for Sam Billings. So actually the, the the bowling was you know 
it was a difficult ground on which to defend sh- very short square boundaries at the, at the Westpac Stadium, the Cape Tin in Wellington, and very long straight boundaries. So, it, you know, it was a real challenge for the bowlers, and it was a challenge for the fielders as well, because you know, a, a lot of the fielders on one side of the ground were looking into the sun, and that was what, you know one of the reasons why the catches went down. But actually, I, I don't think that England lost the second game because of their bowling. I think they lost it because of their batting. I think it was, it was a game they, they, they really could have won, but they lost two wickets very early on. Johnny Bairstow out first ball, and they, they, they just didn't quite have enough in the batting. I think you know, 176 was a reasonable bowling effort on that ground. Uh, you know, and, and, and lots of young bowlers. I mean, Sam Curran's played his first T20 international here, which is a bit bizarre, actually, because you think of him as being a you know, relatively experienced international cricketer now, but it was his first T20 international in Christchurch. Pat Brown has played a, a couple of matches. Saki Mahmood has, has come in and played. Lewis Gregory took a wicket with his first ball in international cricket what about that you know come in and he didn't bowl in the first game took a wicket with his first ball but you know it, it does it's strange actually it does feel like a, you know it is a very experimental England side and it, it does feel as if we're sort of feeling our way back into international cricket after the drama of the summer after the World Cup win after the incredible Ashes series you know the 2-2 in the Ashes and it's it's it, I'd say it's low key, but it it really does feel as if England are feeling their way back in, and you know, lots of new names to to commentate on, to you know, to speak to post match interviews, that that sort of thing. You, you're getting to new, getting to know a sort of whole raft of of new players out here, you know, many of which you know will not be part of England's World Cup T20 squad in 11 months' time in Australia. They, they, they simply won't because, you know, the, the, the big guns will be back. But, they're, you know, possibly there are, you know, one or two places on offer in the squad. And that's what everyone out here is fighting for. I suppose uh, if you look at the, the crowds, uh, I mean, there was a good crowd at Christchurch, but not so good in Wellington. And the crowds in the Australia, Sri Lanka and Australia-Pakistan series that have been going on uh, have been poor, except for, funnily enough, the visitors, Sri Lankan fans pouring into the Melbourne cricket ground and lots uh, of Pakistanis following their team in Sydney, but not many Australians, I don't think, in the grounds, uh, and probably not many New Zealanders in, in the ground at, at Wellington. I wonder whether, you know, is it rugby fever that's still commanding attention or is it perhaps just that people have had too much cricket and that the summers haven't quite got going in either of those countries? My sense here is that it's. I mean, we've only we've only had the two matches, and you're right. You rightly say Christchurch actually was a, a really good crowd, and it looked good as well because the, the grassy banks were full with about six thousand people. I mean, I think the problem at the at the Cape in Wellington is it's a rugby ground, capacity of twenty five thousand, and so unless you have you know a really big crowd in, it is going to look a little bit empty. It might well be the fact that. You know, it's the start of the season. It's it's spring here in New Zealand. It, it, although the sun was out in well in Wellington, it wasn't particularly warm. And it, I suppose you know the rugby season has only just finished. The the World Cup final was was the night before. Okay, New Zealand weren't in it, um, and it might be that you know the, the season hasn't quite got going. Hasn't captured the imagination. I think the key is here in in New Zealand is to play matches on. Ground, the outgrounds, if you like, you know, there's the, the more intimate grounds. Christchurch is like that with the grassy banks. Nelson's like that with its grassy banks. Mount Monganui, uh, where the first test match is going to be played, is, is a bit like that as well. It'll be fascinating actually to see how many people turn up for that. So, 
you know, part of it is is the fact that you know the second game was played on the ground really that's designed for rugby and you're you're playing a cricket match if you'd had that crowd at uh, Christchurch you would have been absolutely heaving and it would look fantastic on television for example but I don't think it looked great on television uh, you know certainly back at home in in that huge stadium at, at the cake team which is you know designed for for big rugby crowds and you know and you know there's no doubt about it that rugby we know that rugby is the game here. Rugby has got the massive mass following in the way that football has in the UK, and 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 cricket is always you know scrabbling for attention. Did you know that fifty three New Zealanders played in various rugby teams in the World Cup that were not New Zealand? So if you add the New Zealand squad itself to all the other teams, there were something like eighty three New Zealanders playing in the in the rugby world cup and was there a bit of ribbing uh, from the kiwis uh, during that final or are they still smarting from their semi-final loss well i, I think a, a bit of both we we watched the game in a, in a bar in wellington it was a 10 o'clock kickoff in the evening uh, local time in wellington and you got the sense that the the locals were supporting south africa it was sort of like anyone but england after what happened the week before it might well be that you know generally speaking England rugby team is not the most liked team around the world so there might have been an, an element of that but that yeah, we we, yeah, we had to sit there in silence for, for most of the match because England didn't play particularly well and they were sort of engulfed by a magnificent South African display and I think it's fair to say the bar we were in uh, the crowd were were pretty enthusiastic when South Africa uh, ran in those late tries to confirm their victory it was uh, we we sort of retreated as soon as the final whistle went we uh, retreated uh, pretty quickly admittedly it was about <laughs> midnight and we're all suffering from jet lag anyway so yeah. it was a, a good excuse to leave the bar it actually reminds me of a, a bit a bit of the I, I spent a lot of time in New Zealand in the 1980s and it was in the early days of of world coverage of cricket so you could get Australian cricket in New Zealand for the first time really and the New Zealanders absolutely loved uh, after practice uh, at a club ground we go to a place called the Ellerslie Oaks in Auckland which had a satellite feed of Australian cricket channel 9 coverage and they would just revel in seeing the Australians ritually trounced by the West Indies so there's that, that you know arch rivalry obviously between New Zealand and Australia and the New Zealanders they they, they loved seeing Australia hammered by that amazing 1980s West Indies team. Actually, New Zealand cricket is is a bit of a throwback, isn't it? Even now, I mean, if you look at those grounds uh, like they are, it does feel like sort of 1980s England in a way. And there is that saying, isn't there? Uh, the air in New Zealand is so clear. If you climb a hill, you can see back 40 years. <laughs> Do you know, it's, it's funny you should say that. I arrived in Christchurch on on Friday, actually on the day of the game. Uh, I came in from, from the USA on, on, on Friday and there, there were so few people in the centre of Christchurch around the, the hotel I was saying. I actually said to the, the woman on reception, is it a public holiday today? And she looked at me slightly bemused saying, no, no, it's just a, it's just a normal working day. But I'm, I'm, I mean, Christchurch has clearly got its, its problems because, you know, after following the earthquake and there's a, a lot of rebuilding going on, I think quite a lot of people left the, 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 the city and, it, you know, it's gradually, gradually getting back on on its feet but it, 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 I can tell you it, it is very different from London where there you know there's a one person for every square inch in, in Christchurch it is not like that at all. Any other performances to pick out from England? 
Well, James Vince. I mean, what what a what a curious uh, couple of matches he has had. He batted superbly in 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 the first game. Um, yeah, the, the James Vince that we all know is in there, really. Uh, you know, as a an international cricketer, I think we all sense that he, he's he's got something, and he showed it in in the first match. Uh, you know, really clean striking of the ball. Uh, he was frustrated to get out towards the end, but actually could have you know he could have had a red inker and and seen England over the line. And then the next game, he he drops two absolute goobers and then gets caught on the the square cover boundary an unusual dismissal but actually symptomatic of the fact that the short uh, the square boundaries were, were very short so he, he sort of drove a ball got a thickish outside edge and was caught on the on the deep cover boundary it's not something you see very often in you know in any cricket really so he's he's sort of one of those cricketers that you he, he, you're drawn to him because he's he's got that that talent and of course with Joe Denley being uh, injured, having you know, turned his ankle, he's got ankle ligament damage. You know, there's just the possibility there might be a a place in the Test squad for you know, another batsman, be it James Vince, uh, who knows, David Milan, you know, Johnny Bairstow's out here as well. Just a question of what they're going to uh, do about that. But you know, so so Vince performed really well in the first game, and you know, not so well in the second. And then the second game, that you know, that old stalwart. Uh, you know, we all talk about Joffre Archer. You know, with his Barbados backgrounds, come over and played in England, has been really successful. Of course, there's, you know, Chris Jordan. He's very similar background. They're great friends. Jordan had a magnificent game in in, in the second match. Wickets, canny bowling, and then you know, whacked the ball everywhere and gave England a, a chance of victory. And he's had actually quite a good year uh, in, in T20 for England because he, he, he bowled very well in the West Indies uh, before the World Cup, uh, four for six. Admirable cricketer, and uh, you know, it, it's actually it, it's good to see that he you know he's still on the scene and and still doing well. You know, there's a lot of, of young bowlers out here trying to sort of vie for places. You know, the likes of Brown and Curran and 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 Saki Mahmood, but it's all an old stager, Chris Jordan, who you know who's canny and 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 showing the younger ones how to do it. Okay, well, I've been covering for BT Sport Australia playing their T20 matches against both Sri Lanka and also now Pakistan. And actually, one amazing story, really, from that series, David Warner, who averaged nine in the Ashes in five tests, and in four T20 matches so far this summer, he hasn't been dismissed. He's scored nearly 300 runs some against the Sri Lankans and, and just a couple, actually, against Pakistan in the first match, which was rained off. But he hasn't got out. He's been dropped a couple of times. But the difference in the way Warner has batted against the white ball compared to the red is, is quite stunning. Uh, he's, he's back to his old best. He's, he's been, you know, pummeling the ball to all parts. Uh, he's looked totally confident, smiles back. Uh, Steve Smith, of course, has carried on his relentless pursuit of runs as well. And the Australians just looked in a totally different league to Sri Lanka. So quite a lot of these T20 uh, matches or series around have thrown up some strange results because Sri Lanka were in Pakistan and beat Pakistan 3-0, but then came to Australia and looked totally second-rate, uh, a really ordinary side uh, who just... It was men against boys with uh, Australia winning 3-0. Pakistan now in uh, uh, Australia with a, a slightly better chance of, of making some 
uh, some inroads into Australia. They've got four left-arm fast bowlers, amazingly. Uh, and one of them is this Mohamed Afan, who we've seen you know, many times before, seven foot one, the tallest, probably the tallest international player ever playing the, the game. And so, you know, a lot of quite interesting sort of stuff going on. Uh, and the amount of T20 cricket around the world now is incredible, isn't it? Well, we've reached a thousand T20s. That India-Bangladesh game was a thousand T20s in in fourteen years. I think I'm right in saying that in terms of fifty-over cricket or one-day international cricket, uh, longer form, uh, short form, if you sort of mean, uh, it took them twenty-four years to reach a thousand one-day internationals. So you know, T20 we know is 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 taking over. It, it, it is more prominent. Uh, and, of course, we're a year away from a, a, a T20 World Cup in Australia. We've just had the qualifying tournament uh, for that. And Namibia have qualified. The Netherlands have qualified. Scotland, Ireland, Oman and, and Papua New Guinea into a, into a, a pre-qualifying tournament. Um, and it's a bit complicated for the tournament in Australia next year. Bangladesh and, and Sri Lanka are <coughs> the other teams in there. Uh, in a a four-team group, uh, Bangladesh, Namibia, Netherlands, Scotland in one group, Ireland, Oman, Papua New Guinea and Sri Lanka in the other. So, you know, everyone's everyone's building up to that and and the T20 theme will continue uh, throughout the next year because teams are playing more and more T20 cricket in preparation for the the T20 World Cup in a year's time. Uh, You know, there there was a time when the ICC would say, right, you know, we, you can only in when on a tour, you know, one game maximum, you know, or two games maximum. But that seems to be you know being relaxed now, and you know, we're in a five match series here in New Zealand. England will play three T Twenties in in South Africa. There'll be more T Twenties in England uh, next summer because the, the the focus, you know, we've had the fifty over World Cup, and now the focus is very much on the T Twenty World Cup in, in Australia next year. I mean, just looking at England's group. Uh, for example, they they definitely play South Africa, India, and Afghanistan. Uh, there's a good chance that Bangladesh will be in there as well. And then the second place from the Ireland, Oman, Papua New Guinea, and Sri Lanka group. So you know they they may well end up with Ireland as well, or or even Papua New Guinea. Who knows? So that that's going to be their their five uh, opponents: South Africa, India, Afghanistan, possibly Bangladesh, possibly Papua New Guinea, or or Ireland, and then. Well, they'll hope into a semi-finals, but it's all it's all gearing up towards that. And the other bizarre thing as well is it's it's not just a World T Twenty or T Twenty World Cup next year, but there's one the year after in India as well. It's all back to back, so it's all it feels like an irresistible force. Uh, the T Twenty game we know it from you know the, the franchise cricket that's played around the world, and it's it's, it's happening in in the international game as well. Yeah, well, I mean, it really is the ICC's attempt to grow the game. This is where they see the format they see uh, is best suited to growing the game. And they made an announcement about a year ago uh, that all associate members were now, if they played a T20 against each other, that would count as a T20 international. So there are now actually 104 countries that can play T20 internationals and it's it's a great story that a team like Papua New Guinea, tiny little country, are now qualifying or have qualified for the qualifier part 
of the World T20 in Australia. So they're going to be part of that tournament in a year's time. And the celebrations you could see on the field in Dubai when they qualified and also when Namibia qualified were, were, were fantastic. I mean, it's just great to see that, that these players who... then A lot of them are now sort of full-time cricketers. They might not play cricket every day, but they play cricket a lot of the time and then coach or, or work in the game in some other capacity. So they are sort of effectively professional cricketers. And all the Papua New Guineas, whereas a lot of countries' teams quite often are drawing from the great Indian diaspora, so expat Indians in you know America or Malaysia or the UAE or wherever it is, uh, but in terms of Papua New Guinea, all the team are Papuans, and they have a really rich cricketing heritage there, which has been going on for many years. Of course, Geraint Jones is their most famous export, uh, but uh, they are, they are genuine, you know, passionate cricket fans with a very good infrastructure around Port Moresby and elsewhere. Their coaches the former Australian bowling coach Joe Dawes, and you know they just have a, a sort of rich tapestry of, of of players i think they're going to cause a few surprises in if they if they make it through to the to the later stages of the t20 world cup they could surprise a few people because they've got some some very good hitters and some some decent spinners as well and, and one good left armor so you know they are quite a talented team and the reason why the ICC see T20 as the way to grow the game is just because you don't need quite the depth of resources, infrastructure, even money to sustain a T20 team as much as you do a test team with the first class structure that you need to have in place to really produce a, a decent test team. That's what someone like Ireland are finding out. You know, unless you have a really sort of quite rich first-class structure, it's very difficult to produce a consistent test team. But T20 is a, is a, is a format of the game where you, you, you don't need quite the level of sophistication, perhaps, than you would to, to mount a sort of test challenge. And, and so it's quite encouraging to see, actually, that, you know, these countries are coming through and there are now, you know, about 20 reputable T20 international teams. The other point as well, of course, is that if you're not successful in a T20 match uh, and you know, you're vulnerable because you haven't got that quality, the game doesn't last for as long. You're not absolutely thrashed. You know, if you're playing a test match and you're really not up to standard, you can lose by an innings and, and 300 runs. If you play a, a one-day international, you can get beaten by 230 runs. But in a T20 match, A, if you're, if you're getting thrashed, it's over quickly. And B, probably the... the, the the size of the defeat is not so great. So, in a way, you know, the shorter the game, the greater chance of the upset as well, which helps, you know, which which is a factor in encouraging lesser teams. And I mean, I would be I would be surprised if Papua New Guinea, if they were to qualify, which they could well do, qualify for the the sort of Super Twelve stage of the the T Twenty World Cup in in Australia in a year's time. I would be surprised if they. Uh, upset the the big teams, but that that's part of the development, isn't it? You get to feel what it's like playing in those big tournaments. And of course, then, you know if there's one the year after as well, then you the experience you gain from being in one tournament you can take over into the next tournament. 
It was pretty one-sided, uh, the Australia-Sri Lanka series, actually, having said all that. Australia only lost six wickets in the three games, and one of them, uh, they scored 233 for two, and Sri Lanka was sort of 99 all out. So it was uh, it was a bit one-sided, actually, the Australia-Sri Lanka series. Now, in that series, uh, Glenn Maxwell played in the first two games, and he he batted brilliantly in the first game, Typical Maxwell came in and sort of reverse lapped the fast bowlers and belted them over deep mid-wicket. And, you know, he looked absolutely to the manner born, as we all know, in, in, in his T20 format. Uh, and he actually was also uh, mic'd up for talking to the commentators. And he was really funny. And he, he almost became one of the commentators who was sort of commentating on a ball as it was being bowled and then ran in and fielded it and kind of commentated on that. So it was, it was very engaging. And then, quite surprisingly, the announcement came before the third match that he uh, was not feeling well and that he had problems with his mental health and he'd be taking some time out of the game. And everybody leapt to his defence uh, and said, uh, you know, what, what a shame, how sad, give him all the support he, he needs. But it, it's amazing, isn't it, that, that how, how deceptive this kind of situation can be. Chris Lynn, who's a, who's a good friend of his, actually put it quite well. He said, you know, cricketers are like icebergs. You know, you see that sort of stuff on the surface, but there's all that depth going on below, which you don't see. And clearly, Maxwell was, was having these problems uh, of dealing with the pressure of, of, of being an international sportsman, and they were getting too much for him. It's quite sad to see, but I wonder if... You know, it, it is part of a wider issue. You mentioned about all these T20 internationals being played, a 1,000 in 10 years or something. I mean, are we just playing too much cricket and people can't cope? Mm. Well, you never know what's going on in, in, in someone's mind. Cricket is such a, a, a tough game mentally. I know international sport generally is, you know, it, it is ruthless. Uh, but cricket in particular, got, as you know, as yourself, you, you've got so much time to, to think about and, and, and contemplate your, your success or, or failure. And your success or failure is, is so clear, you know, in a, in a scorecard, it's unequivocal. Uh, you know, unlike many other sports, you think of you know rugby and football. I know there are many more stats in in those sort of sports now, but you know you can you can make one mistake in cricket, and that is the the end of your day or the end of your your match almost. So it it, it is a, a a tough, a really mentally tough sport to to cope with, and 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 clearly uh, you know, it, it does undermine. Uh, lots of players we, we've seen that you know in in in, in recent years uh, you know you think of someone like Marcus Truscott you think of Jonathan Trott uh, and, you know there are many more examples as well cricket is a is a bloody tough sport yeah well we wish Glenn Maxwell well and, and a speedy recovery and uh, there's one sort of other sad note to, to talk about which I mentioned at the start and that is Shakib Al-Hassan being banned for two years for not reporting approaches from bookies. One of those two years is a suspended sentence, so he will probably be only out of the game for a year, provided he behaves himself in the meantime. But it does show that that there is still this awful potential for match fixing looming over the game and you know we mention about all, all these hundreds of T20 internationals going on each one of them is susceptible to all sorts of manipulation the fascinating thing here i think is that is the fact that it, it 
the ICC have changed their approach, it's, it, it, it would appear, to try to come to terms with, with match fixing, spot fixing, whatever you like to call it, in that it's so difficult to, to nail down players by you know things like uh, wiretaps or uh, investigating their bank accounts. Uh, you know, it, th- there's a change of policy, and that, that is to, to now uh, take on players who do not report approaches. They, they all uh, go through all the education programs. They know that if they don't uh, report an approach, they are liable to be suspended, and that's what's happened in the Shakib Al Hassan case. And that that's that's the way the the ICC are going. That's the that's their uh, approach at the moment to try to catch players who are guilty of f- offences under their match fixing code. And it, it is my understanding that it's, it's not finished. You know, there may well be uh, other players named uh, in in the next uh, week or so. And in some ways, you say it's good that the authorities are trying to come to terms with, get to grips with the problem of match fixing, spot fixing. Whether they can eradicate it completely, I don't know. I doubt it. But at least there is a policy at the moment which is now dealing with players. And, that you know, you think of someone like Shaky Pelsan, that is a really prominent name in the game. I mean, he had a fantastic World Cup. He was a prominent figure in the World Cup. Uh, for Bangladesh in the summer, there's been a lot of comment about it in 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 Bangladesh. You know, saying you know it, it is ridiculous that a player has been uh, banned for a couple of years, one one year suspended for not reporting an approach. Well, the first thing I say about that is all the players know they're supposed to report uh, the approaches. But also, what's interesting is that Shakib has accepted. He's actually released a statement saying you know he's, he accepts his punishment. He knows that he's he's done wrong, and, that, and in a way that is saying to all those people who are trying to support him look um you, you know don't don't take offense at the fact that i have been banned you know i i it's i'm banged to rights yeah and uh, i mean i've got no sympathy either i, I mean it, it it all these players are educated regularly about the tactics of bookies and other people sort of hovering around the game and one of the tactics used commonly at the moment is by illegal bookmakers tapping up coaching staff, net bowlers, or indeed players, if they can get at them, for inside information on possible formats, batting first, bowling first, people who might open the batting, targets in power play, overs. And how they uh, manage to get their information is quite often by ingratiating themselves with that player or that coach, buying them dinner, in some cases uh, providing women for them. That's another tactic. And sort of gradually getting their claws into that person, whether it's a player or a coach or or a net bowler, so that they then sort of almost feel duty bound to offer advice back. And it's it's that kind of exchange of things like WhatsApp messages, which can in the end incriminate uh, a player or a, or a coach, and that's what the the ICC are looking out for: is to try and find these illegal bookmakers and see who they interact with, and then uh, they can identify the players or coaches who who've been um, uh, uh, communicating with them. Obviously, 
one of the problems, and people will say, well, why are players still getting lured into these kind of communications? And I, I suppose that the simple answer is that with players like from Sri Lanka or Bangladesh, for example, they're not paid anything like the money that the players from England, Australia, India and other countries are paid. And they're just they're being greedy, but they're also being opportunistic and trying to make up uh, for the fact that they're not paid as much as, as other countries. And that's not really an excuse, but you can sort of see why it happens. Yeah, and it, it's it's very difficult to, to to catch players in the act. I think that, that's that's the point, isn't it? it, it, it you, you need a, a wiretap. You need a sort of handsy cronia situation where, you, you know, you're actually caught making a, a telephone call where you're you know, liaising with a bookie and saying what you're going to do, and and that's obviously what happened with the you know with, with Hansi Kronje and those those tapes when the, you know the Delhi police ha, you know had that tape of Hansi Kronje speaking, and that you know everyone's eyes were were open to that. But it, you know, it's not easy; it's very very difficult to 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 get that sort of evidence, and you know, it's very difficult to investigate people's bank accounts, and and that's why the ICC are going down the road of. Uh, nailing players for not reporting approaches from bookmakers. It, it seems sort of innocuous in a way. Oh, you know, a bookie approaches you, uh, tries to get you to fix a match, you just sort of brush it off in theory, and you don't say anything. Well, that you know, they, the players know that is not good enough. If they are approached, they have to report it. And Shakib Al-Hassan has been done under that aspect of the ICC code. And, of course, uh, what is tempting all these bookmakers into this activity is the number of T20 and One Day Internationals being shown on TV uh, uh, so that, that, you know, they are all an opportunity to bet even women's games, even domestic games they'll bet on. And hundreds of millions of dollars are, are bet on on some of these games. So there's a, there's a huge amount of margin for, for people to make a lot of money with just a little tiny bit of information here or there. Uh, so, you know, it is something that, that desperately needs more resources to, to stamp out and probably, as you say, will never do it, it, it completely. Um, it's always been something that's sort of gone on, isn't it, in cricket, even kind of slightly informally, like the time when I was playing for Durham against a, a touring team and while well, we were blocking out for a draw and this touring team needed needed to win eight out of nine county matches to get a bonus. Uh, and so one of their players offered me £100 to get out. It's the first time anyone's offered me £100 to, to get out. And I, I said, well, you'll have to offer me a lot more than that. And then I got run out sort of soon after. So the, the bet was off. And I, by the way, I wasn't run out deliberately. But it, it is something that I guess the, the authorities are grappling with, and it seems like, and, and your point that earlier was that they're sort of starting to, to find a few bigger targets, which sends a very powerful message that you don't do it. Yeah, it's, just, it's a change of strategy. I think the, the, big, the biggest problem with it is, it's, and I've, I've thought this for a long time now, is once we started to know that match fixing was going on, when it, you know, when it came out in, in the 1990s, when we started to realise that this was happening, the, the problem is with it is you see incidents on the field now and you, they might be perfectly normal run of events, but you start to think that, that looks suspicious. You know, why did that player drop a catch? You know, why did the player get out? Why did the bowler bowl that delivery, uh, you know, that point of the over and and 
once you start to doubt the game, then it, it sort of undermines its credibility. I mean, I'm not saying anything particularly new here, but it is that point you lose that you lose that sense of wonderment of the game, that the, the fact that you can have unpredictable uh, activities in a, in a match. You start to think, oh, well, is that uh, uh, is what I'm seeing real or is it is it being manufactured and that is what is so insidious uh, and i i'm skeptical about the ability of the authorities to, to totally come to terms with the, with the problem but you know if you are nailing someone high profile like shakib al hassan then you are making some progress clearly you know it it, it is a marker to, to players who might be tempted to to be involved in this. I mean, one of the one of the problems of course is that if you're in if you're in so deep then how do you get out of it as as a player you know if you if you have been entrapped at, at a young age how do you then extricate yourself from that are you always uh, in in hock to the bookmakers and that you know that is one of the games you know, it it is a huge problem f facing the game, and it you know clearly it is it is still going on, and uh, you know everyone should you know have their eyes open to it. Very very well put. Uh, incidentally, it didn't stop the lack of uh, having Shakib Al Hassan. Didn't stop Bangladesh from beating India in the first T Twenty international in India. So that was an impressive scalp. Well, listen, we'll leave it there. Um, we will can continue to report back on the. T20 fiesta going on around the world over the next few weeks. Uh, we'll be back with you next Monday when actually I'm doing a special report on minorities in England and how we can engage them better in the game. So Simon, enjoy your odyssey around New Zealand and keep the shorts on. I, I plan to, although I'm told after uh, sunshine in, in Nelson it's going to rain for the, the rest of the week. But let's keep our fingers crossed for the rest of the T20 series. England go to Napier and then they go to Auckland. And then you know, we talk about a T20 fiesta. After that, then it's, it's focused on the, the, the test series. England got warm-up matches, two warm-up matches in Whangarei, which is in the north of the North Island of New Zealand, and then two test matches. And England have experimented with their T20 squad, but they are not experimenting that much with their test squad. They, you know, all the big players are coming out here. And But having said that, Dominic Sibley and Zach Crawley will be out here and a you know, great opportunity for them uh, you know, in, in a week or so's time to, to stake their claim for a test place. Well done on your pronunciation of Fungaray, by the way. Hope, hope you've enjoyed it, and thanks for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network.